welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello, welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the only coach I've ever really known, Coach Trevor Connor. I won't get into how sad that really is. In the famous book, Daniel's Running Formula. Jack Daniels lays out what he considers to be the four ingredients of success. The fourth ingredient is direction, and he describes it as follows. Direction, the final ingredient of success, refers to a coach, a teacher, or a training plan that can be followed. Of the four ingredients of success, direction is probably the one of least significance, should one of the ingredients have to be eliminated. I say this because direction is the only ingredient that can have either a positive or negative influence on the athlete. It is possible for absence of direction to be better than bad direction. It may seem a little strange to hear one of the most decorated running coaches of all time say that coaching or direction is the least important ingredient of success, and it raises an important question. Do we really need a coach? In today's episode, we're taking on that very question. First, we'll start by asking our expert guests that simple question, do we need a coach? Next, we'll talk about the relationship athletes have with their coaches, what makes a good relationship, and what makes a bad one. After we've defined that relationship, we'll ask our panel what to look for in a good coach, and conversely, how to identify a bad coach. Finally, we'll talk briefly about how much coaching is worth, and whether an athlete should stick with the same coach or change from time to time. Our panel today includes first... Coach Neil Henderson, owner of Apex Coaching and current coach of time trial world champion Rowan Dennis, among other elite athletes. Neil has joined us before on one of our most popular episodes. In fact, episode 33, Is FTP Dead? Check that one out. Our other main guest today is the renowned endurance athlete Rebecca Rush, formerly an adventure racer, now a decorated cyclist of mountain bike, gravel, and bikepacking events around the world. Rebecca currently works with CTS coach Dean Golich, who we'll hear from in this episode. For many years, though, she went without a coach. She has a great depth of knowledge and experience as an athlete and brings a wealth of knowledge to the conversation. She also runs several training camps and hosts her namesake, Rebecca's Private Idaho Gravel Race, near her home. Check them out online at RebeccaRush.com. In addition to our main guest today, we have several experts weigh in throughout the episode. Kieran O'Grady, a coach and sports scientist with Team Dimension Data, talks with us about the pros and cons of self-coaching versus the accountability that comes from working with a coach. Lado NL Yumbo's Sepp Kuss, winner of this year's Tour of Utah, reached the world tour by being self-coached, believe it or not. We talk about why he did that and what it's like now working with the team's trainers. We check in with Dean Golich, head performance physiologist at CTS. Dean has worked with an incredible number of top athletes and shares some of his thoughts on how he approaches coaching all of them. The legendary Ned Overend continues to crush Cat 1 riders into his 60s. Despite all of his success, Ned has never had a coach. He explains why. Finally, we talk with Armando Mastracci, who has developed a highly sophisticated training AI system that can help athletes plan their workouts. Armando discusses what parts of coaching a good AI system can replace and what it can't. Now, a friendly reminder, don't forget to rate us and send us your feedback. We love your comments, we love your suggestions, and the more reviews we get, particularly on iTunes, the easier it will be for others to find the great content of Fast Talk. 
And finally, it's worth pointing out that Coach Daniels didn't say coaching was a bad thing. He just said a bad coach is worse than no direction at all. So of course, he offered his thoughts on what makes a good coach. If the term coach refers to the person who directs the improvement or refinement of running performance, then a good coach can answer the question, why are we doing this workout today? A good coach produces beneficial reactions to training, creates positive race results, and transforms the athletes he or she brings into the program into better runners and better human beings. That is a tall order. And with that, we hope to add clarity and context to the discussion of coaching. Let's make you fast. Working on your holiday wish list this year? Normatech is the ultimate athlete gift, and for a limited time, you can save $200 and get free shipping on the Pulse Recovery System. An extensive body of research shows that Normatech increases circulation and reduces muscle stiffness. The result? You can train harder and race faster. Normatech is the official supplier of USA Cycling, and it's also the same technology that riders like Tom Skunch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC Racing Team all rely on. So I'll turn it over to you guys. Neil, Rebecca, what do you think? Is that quote true? Is there some truth to it? This is Neil. Uh, I can tell you from my perspective, I think there are clear advantages of having a coach and uh, that, that most folks would find benefit in having a coach. That being said, a bad coach is clearly worse than no coach. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of a warning there and, and who that person as a coach, what that role and who holds that role clearly has, has an impact. But by and large, if you have somebody who has the athlete's best interest in mind, that having a coach clearly, I think, confers benefits over not. So I just want to tell a, a quick story because this is how I actually discovered the Jack Daniels book very early in my cycling career when I went, well, if I'm serious, I need to hire a coach. And I hired somebody who was extraordinarily scientific. And he wanted me on the trainer all the time because you got better data on the trainer. When I finally said, this is killing me, I need to go outside. He wanted me to ride this one road that was perfectly flat and just go up and down it. Because if I went and rode hills, and, and roads that varied, he wasn't going to get as good data on me. <laughs> Needless to say, I was burnt out by April that year. Following year, I ended up talking to the person who really became my mentor. I've mentioned before, Glenn Swan. And he just sat me down and in an hour explained to me the fundamental principles of training and said, read this book, Jack Daniels' book. And between that hour conversation with him and reading the book, that was the year I went from a guy who was getting popped in Cat 4 races to a Cat 1. Mm -hmm. You know, I would just say you had the wrong coach. I mean, a coaching-athlete yeah. relationship is just that. It's, it's like being in a bad or good marriage. You know, if you're with any sort of relationship that is good is going to elevate both parties. A relationship that's bad is going to bring people down. And you can see that when people are having struggling in their marriages and they're real crabby when they come to work and they're just, their performance isn't good in life. And I've, I've, I've been an, an athlete, professional athlete for three decades and in various different sports, rock climbing, cycling, adventure racing. And I've done long stints with coaches and long stints without coaches. And, you know, my coaching world began in high school 
cross country running. And that was my first experience with a coach. And, you know, most recently, Dean Golich from CTS. But I, I did a big stint in the middle. And it, yeah, there's bad relationships and there's good relationships. And, and I think we are elevated when we find the right match. With Dean, you know, I'm not his typical cycling athlete. And I live in a winter climate. And it's like, I just said to him flat out, like when we started, hey, I'm not going to do four hours indoor on the trainer. And so he finds a way. And so I go, he's like, all right, you can do an hour cross country skiing and you can do, um, you know, an hour on your fat bike. And then you got to come in and do an hour on the trainer and do that specific work. And, and there was a give and take of me telling him what I needed and him finding a way because he knew I wouldn't do the work otherwise. So he found a way for me to, it wasn't perfect, but it was better than, than not doing the work and dreading four hours indoor on the trainer. So what about the other side of the story I just gave? I always describe Glenn Swan as my mentor, first mentor, not my first coach, because it was really just sitting down for an hour and, and explaining to me the principles and then telling me to read a book. And I ended up having, just with that, one of the most successful seasons of my life. And I never had a training plan. I just followed the principles. So how do you two, I mean, what's your feeling about that, Neil? Yeah. So coaching can come in a lot of different forms and formats. So Often when somebody uses the term now about I have a coach, it's that somebody prescribes you a given workout, there's some sort of a plan, there's some sort of, you know, review with you. But it's this kind of somewhat regimented relationship, though it can vary to some degree. There's still a lot of people who think of coaching that exists in that they send me stuff, I do it, we look at it, and then we, you know, make some adaptations and do more or less of some of it and keep going. And that's, I think, a pretty, uh, I think that's a pretty typical thing of what, what some people see in coaching. That can be a component of it. And that really isn't the same kind of coaching that I think is what is most valuable and being able to understand somebody's motivations and where they're trying to go and look exclusively beyond the data. And I am a science guy. I absolutely love my data and information, but I will not sacrifice the, the mental health of the athlete to try to get that kind of information. And so looking to see what the motivations of that athlete is, where they're coming from, what their goals are. So even, you know, two athletes that I coached to our world records, we still did very different things, whether it's Evelyn Stevens doing her hour record versus Rowan Dennis. There was the preparation. It was not like, okay, we've done, I've done this before. It's just not a copy paste and do the same workout. So there was literally nothing similar in there, two things. Rowan never once did a one hour effort maximally before the hour record. Evie did it three times on her own in wow. different ways, on the trainer once, on an outdoor track, and on the indoor track once. It's just differences in where they're coming from, and both had success, but we had to come at it from a very different angle with, with each person, so adapting. Yeah, and it, it seems like both of you are saying a similar thing, but from the two different the two sides of the coach athlete perspective, which is there's a lot of psychology involved. You have to understand the person, what makes them tick, what motivates them, how to motivate them. You have to understand all of that to then be able to change the training appropriately. Would you agree with that statement Both for both of you? Let's start with Neil. Absolutely, yes. That there is no one size fits all like coaching method and, and uh, terms and, and things like that. So being able to first create a connection and a relationship with, with a coach and athlete is, is critical. So for me, it's always a learning about the person and seeing if it's the right fit, even should we go down this road. I want to meet an athlete several times before 
starting to coach them. There are people like, I want you to be my coach. It's like, okay, let's right. let's meet. Let's just have coffee. Let's go for a ride. Let's then look at this. And there's a there's times where it's like, you know, where you are and what you're looking for, I can't provide. Or your, you know, what, what your needs are and what I'm capable of doing aren't going to be the right fit. And I'm going to recommend them to somebody I think that may have that right, right skill set right. for them and approach. So that for the for me, that psychology and being able to make a connection is the first and foremost. If we don't have that to begin with, then everything else is going to be a hard road to hoe. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're you're both saying, if I'm hearing you right, that the the training plan and the science is kind of a foundation, but it's a small part of it and. It's everything on top of that that determines whether you have a, a good coach or, as Jack Daniels said, worse than no plan at all. Well, here's the thing for somebody like imagine taking an online course. You know, you're trying to learn Spanish or whatever it is. Uh, you're taking an online course. The information is there. You can read it. You're a smart person. You do the practice and you graduate. And then imagine we can all go back to that one teacher in our lives, whether it was high school or college or whatever, that you you just really loved and you went to that class and you listened and you, and they were presenting the same information, but you got so much more out of that personal experience than just an online course that is black and white and the material is, is laid out for you. I mean, that's the best example I can think of to really, and it does really elevate your experience. Yeah, you could learn online, but are you really going to take your performance and to really the ultra world-class level or your best, your best level, or you're going to just learn the stuff and, and you can do it. And the example earlier, you went from a cat four to whatever, winning a bunch of races because you, you got the information packaged in a different way. And in your case, it was a mentor in a book, but that is how the information, how it's presented is really important to the person. So, I mean, this is sounding like a tall order for coaches because we're saying they have to know the science, they have to know the training, they have to learn the individual. And then on top of all that, they almost have to play psychologist as well and, and be advisor and be a friend. Is that asking too much of coaches? Do you think many coaches can be all these things? The good ones can. The sucky ones. There's plenty of ones that don't do that. Sign <laughs> <laughs> up Thank, and you thanks. pay your $19.99 or whatever, and that's what you get. And the really expensive personalized coaching programs, that's why they do cost more because those people really are your mentor, your friend. You know, They're holding you accountable. They're, they're tough love when you need it. And they really are. There's a lot more to it than, than just the science. I do love it. The last time you were in here, you described a workout that you gave to Rohan. That is one. Ouch, that's mean. And your response is, he's not paying me to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> There's certain work aspects. Again, Rebecca said it very clearly. Like, this is not easy. Again, high performance sport is a, it's a hard way to make a living. Uh, there, are, there are far easier ways. And so, you know, they kind of know a bit of what, what that is and just kind of buckle down in certain cases and get it done. And then there's times where we need to adapt and adjust situationally. Okay, you're not sleeping as well. You have a a newborn. Okay, we need to definitely need to keep things in check now and balance that rather than like, it's just hard. Like these are hard workouts. Okay, well, I get it. Uh, The Giro is not not easy either. So let's let's go. You know, third week of the Giro is going to be pretty, pretty sucky. We recently interviewed Karen O'Grady about trainers. But as a world tour coach working with Team Dimension Data, we took advantage of the opportunity to get his opinion on coaching whether athletes truly need one. I've been self-coached myself uh, as a racer for, for 10 years, and, but I, I obviously am a coach and, and, and have a background in sports science, but there are plenty of guys who, who do try to coach themselves. And, try, and it's, it's more about 
if you're willing to make the investment yourself in you know getting getting the knowledge and and being diligent with what you're doing if if you want to go down the route of being self-coached then be diligent in keeping a training log you know test and and try to have some way of taking your your ego out of the the equation and being a bit um objective and and saying this didn't work you know i i didn't pull my pull my way here um but i would you know i would say a coach is a valuable asset um there's for the amateur athlete to have the accountability of someone planning something and then you know that they're going to review it and whatever you're going to do over the next couple of months will be based on your performance in those training sessions there's there's nothing like that to to kind of really make sure that you you do get the training done otherwise the the inner sloth will come out and and you'll just find yourself sitting on the couch and doing nothing would you i know this is probably going to be a difficult question to answer but in 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 your mind what is the greatest benefit of having a coach i'm going to be very very diplomatic and very politician like in my answer and say that it depends rider on rider you've got some riders who would benefit from from that sort of accountability you've got other riders who would you know benefit from having that sole focus on one race i would say if i had to really make a decision and say overall what the what the total benefit is from the coach it would be that the the objective accountability of it you are paying them to deliver a service you know it's someone else who's taking the time and saying this is this is what i feel is the best way for you and they're going to be the guys that are educated and qualified to, to deliver that. And you do it. And then it's kind of back on them. Did it work? So if you do what they've said and it hasn't worked, then that's the coach's. That, that's down on the coach. I wouldn't say it's the coach's fault. It's it's down to the coach to, to try to work out why has that happened? You know, what's gone on there? And then to modulate, you know, to, to kind of evolve what they've planned. It seems to me that one of the most crucial aspects of the coach athlete uh relationship is an open dialogue what works what doesn't work from both ends of that perspective both perspectives yeah um having having the good communication with the riders and, and learning what communication works best i find i've got some riders who you know love actually quite a, a remote you know coach sort of feeling even though i live quite close to them they want they want to just ping me an email every week you know once a week and say this is my availability for next week um you know, to make adjustments to the plan. And then I'll check in with them at the end of the week and say, okay, you know, cards on the table. You've, you've had your week and what have you done? And, and we look at the performance then. But there's other guys who, who it's much more of a, uh, a kind of, you're, you're almost their friend and, and saying, you know, you're chatting with them and, and, and sort of getting a feeling of, you know, how they're going and, and, and all, the, all the other stresses in their life. All right, we cut you off in the middle of our conversation, so let's get back to it. I think you touched upon something there where uh, Rebecca will have a little insight because she just spoke at a uh, Red Bull leadership conference where she she wanted to bring in the idea that a coach is not a boss, a coach is a, a teacher. So maybe, Rebecca, I'll turn it over to you and touch upon that aspect of a coach-athlete relationship. Yeah, I mean, it was actually a really interesting conference, and I was invited to be there as sort of a panel moderator and discussion with with two other world class athletes, um, Kate Courtney, who's a mountain bike racer, and um, Will Clay, who is an Olympic medalist, uh, triple jump and long jump athlete. And I was speaking to a bunch of 
you know, amateur athletes slash leadership people at Red Bull. And the title of the speech was Don't Be a Boss, Be a Coach. And I, I basically took a lot of comparisons between, you know, examples from, um, from all of us on, on, you know, what a coach really does for you. And, and I do want to probably people listening to this podcast are like, well, I'm not a professional athlete. I'm not going to the Olympics. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't want a coach to like do those kind of gnarly workouts. And people ask me that all the time. They're like, well, I'm not that good. I don't really need a coach. And I do want to debunk that myth a little bit because it's, if you do care about your performance and you want to do better, then a coach is really helpful. If you're happy where you are, then yeah, maybe you don't need it. And I, I spent 15 years of my athletic career without a coach. Um, so I get that perspective of wanting to just like, I was living out of my car, I was rock climbing, I was paddling, I was doing a bunch of stuff and, and I was, I wanted more freedom and then came back to a coach, you know, when I started getting serious, serious about cycling. So, so I got the perspective of being like, I don't want that kind of rigidity. And, and that a lot of the people in the audience of this leadership conference, you know, they're not professional athletes and they never are going to be, but we really did talk about, it really was about relationships, whether it's your relationship at work or your relationship with your coach. And, and one thing that I really wanted to emphasize is that it's a collaboration. Yes, your coach has all the knowledge and the science and the experience. Your coach, your coach isn't just your boss. You know, you're working on performance together. And so the athlete needs to be confident enough and the coach be open enough to have a back and forth dialogue of, you know, this isn't working for me. And this is why. The example I gave of, I told Dean flat out, I live in a winter environment. I'm not going to ride the trainer. I'm just not going to do it. So let's just figure out another way. And I had to be confident enough to tell him that. And then we, we met in the middle somewhere. He's like, okay, we got to do it, the trainer a little bit, <laughs> but you can do some of that other stuff too. And I think that's really the key to all of this is that the athlete and the coach are one confident enough and secure enough in their sort of ego and being that you're not a boss. The, the coach isn't saying you got to do this or else. They're like, here's my suggestion, you know, and let's, let's collaborate and figure it out along the way. And honestly, I, something that I really get out of Dean of, you know, coming back to coach and having a coach is, is honest feedback of, I, I don't know about other athletes, but most of the time I think that I really suck and I could be doing better. And most athletes I know think they could be doing more. Their competition is doing more. And for me, a lot of times it's not Dean being hard on me. It's actually him saying, no, 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 you're supposed to be tired. This is okay. You know, this is part of the process. You're doing great. And that's something that I think people who are really good at what they do often don't think they're very good at what they do. And so for, for me, a sort of a, a consoler cheerleader person is a really important part of that relationship. So I love that you brought up that it's a, it's a two-way street. I still remember working with this one athlete. So quick step back. Most of my athletes absolutely love training races. So I have to work it into the plan because you need to have some fun. Uh, they might get a little stronger if they're always doing structured work, but there's a mental side. Mm-hmm. So I always work that in. So with this athlete, I got to a spring plan. I'm like, okay, I'll throw in some training races. He gets to have some fun. And the whole spring, he was kind of miserable. I'm like, uh, you don't seem to be happy. What's going on? He's like, no, Trevor, I'm, I'm doing the work. I'm trying. Everything's okay. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, everything's fine. And finally, we got to about June. And he just opens up to me and he goes, I really hate that you put training plans on, uh, on my, or training races on my plan. Like, I don't sleep the night before. I'm really <laughs> nervous about them. Uh -oh. I, I feel like I have to win. It's just, it's killing me. And I was like, why didn't you tell me that? I only put them on because I thought you'd think they were fun. 
He's just like, oh, Oops. I should have said something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The athlete does need to give the coach feedback just like the coach needs to give the athlete feedback. It's a two-way street all, all at all times, I think. Yes, there are, you know, if you look at coaching styles, you can, you know, look at various examples that might be out there in the media in different sports. But basically, you really have those that are top down. I tell you what to do and you don't question it. I think, you know, there are some people that have had success doing that. I don't, as a coach, personally believe that that's a super effective style, nor is it something that leads to happy, healthy, Mm, functioning humans in the long term. And so I'm not at all a a fan of that method. Then you have people who are the collaborators that that talk, you know, we meet, let's talk about what's going on. And it's not, again, just me telling you what to do, but you need to give me some feedback and guidance on that and what you're doing and, and what you think you need to do a lot of times. Like, what do you think you need to do before this race to be prepared? putting the athlete back to a degree in the driver's seat. The worst coaches tend to be the ones who do both of those, depending on the day. It's all top down, don't ask me a question. And then the next day they're asking, well, what do you think? And then it goes back and forth and the athlete never knows Mm. which one are we talking, how are we dealing today? And that's a bad coach, somebody that doesn't have clearly the way they do things. And I really do believe that the collaborator model is far better overall in in terms of what is healthy and sustainable, but making sure you have those communications and how that's set up, you know, again, just as a coach, the, the way, you know, even just looking at social media, I, I think I sent out a tweet earlier, a few days ago, reminder to coaches. It's something about not saying my athlete does this or my athletes do that. I hate that terminology. They're not my athletes. They are the, themselves. I'm somebody who helps them, mm-hmm. the athletes that I get to work with. They own their performances. They own their training. They own it when it goes well, and they also own it when it doesn't go well. I always want them to have it go well, but we're going to figure that out and not take straight ownership. You know, in, in my discussion with Kate Courtney and Will Clay was interesting, and Kate made a good point that that her coach, um, Jim Miller, she, you know, it's always we. We can do this. We can, and and when things aren't going well, he he's always taking ownership of well. You know, if she crashed or got a flat or something happened, well, we can do this better or we can do this next time. But she said whenever there's a win or anything like that, he's always steps back and puts her on the pedestal. And even though it's a collective win and he's celebrating as well, I I thought that that was a really nice just terminology and a way of looking at it that, yes, we're in this together, especially when it's hard and it's not going well. And that you get up on that podium and you don't need to give me props on your day. And I thought that that was that was a sign of a really good coach. I once heard the best definition of a leader is when things are going well, it was the team. When things are going bad, it's the leader's fault. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. In terms of that concept of, of ownership, I'll, I'll start with Neil. Do you make it a, um, a practice to try to educate your athletes as to not just what they should be doing, but why they should be doing it? Absolutely. So the best coaches are also educators. If I do my job well, they're not going to need me at some point in the future. As sad as that, you know, in some cases, you know, is I've had athletes that have that we, we start working at a point and, and they graduate I, from you they eventually. Graduate. Yeah. And and I'm happy. I've had multiple folks that have had successes, you know, after we work together. And I'm the first one, you know, a lot of times to say, hey, I'm I'm really excited for you. That's fantastic. 
the best coaches are managing all the different resources that can help somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, again, there's sometimes that, uh, again, that ownership coach who wants to do everything. And geez, I mean, you can't be a sports psychologist, a dietitian, a biomechanist, a physiologist, a da-da-da. You can't do all of those things at the same, you know, at the highest level for everyone. And so knowing when to farm out, you know, I've had uh, at a mountain bike, you know, master's mountain biker that I coached who really had difficulty with technical downhills. And and absolutely, I was looking for who's a good mm-hmm. technical mountain bike coach that we can get yep. get her to work with to develop that skill set. And and she actually ended up winning a, a world championship title after being on the podium a couple times. And clearly it was, you know, okay, I, we realized where the deficit was and I was, but I'm not that skills yep. coach. And so sending her to work with someone else and get better at that. Yeah, I was going to say, any good coach is going to have resources. If you hire a coach and they claim they can do anything, and especially if you're out in a ride with them and and you say, how does my position look on the bike? And the the coach claims that just watching you ride in front of them, they can tell you if your position is good, be really, really skeptical. A good coach is going to say, here's the best fitter in town. This is the person that you need to go to give that person my name and and go get a good fit. Yep. And Rebecca, you've had periods of time when you've had coaches and and no coaches and you've had, it sounds like multiple coaches in your life. Would you say the, the relationships you've had with coaches were the, were the best when they were educators, when they helped you understand why you were doing the workouts you were doing or, or, or was it just a matter of, them laying out a plan and you following it? Sometimes, and this is what I love about a really good coach and especially someone like Dean or Matthew that I've worked with is they they spend their days reading all those papers and all those studies and that I don't want to do. And I, I also don't enjoy the the math and statistics part of, of training. And so there is part of me that's just like, just tell me what I want to, I need to do and I'll go do it. That's fine. I don't want to think about it. But what is I do really appreciate being educated about is the why. And, you know, assuming that an athlete is just a physical being and not a thinking being is a mistake. And so if Dean says, you know, you're training for a five-day bikepacking event, but you need to do three-minute intervals, I need to understand why because I hate them, first of all, and I'm not really good at them. And I need to know that this is really going to help. And then I'll do it. And then I will embrace and I'll take it and be like, okay, if you say it's really going to help, but this is why, and there's a, and he'll send me like five science papers about it. I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. I'll do the thing. <laughs> yeah, I will embrace it more wholeheartedly, especially the really hard stuff. If I understand that there, that it works and that there's a process and that there's, you know, method to the madness. And so I do really appreciate the intellectual quality of a coach. And, you know, Dean has been, he's kind of like, um, going to the library and, you know, looking up any sort of article you want. And he can put his, his fingers on either the person that can help me or the article that will, you know, I'll be like, hey, has, I'm sure nobody's ever thought about this. When you do, especially ultra endurance stuff and like sleep deprivation and all sorts of things like that, that I'm sure like I'm going to stump the chump, you know, and give him a question that he can't answer. And sure enough, he'll put his hands on a resource like that, even though he's never had an athlete like me. And it's so valuable. One, it saved me a bunch of time that, you know, time's precious commodity. And then it also helps me really get behind our plan and embrace it and be like, oh, okay. And I learned something every time from him. And I've taken things that, you know, like sleep deprivation or things like that, that I didn't know about and he didn't know about, but he found the answer for me. 
Sepp Kuss, a rider on Lotto NL Yumbo, just had a breakthrough season, and it was his first year at the World Tour level. Yet he never had a coach. Sepp talked with Chris about why he didn't have a coach and what it's like working with the team trainers now. Why did you choose not to work with a coach? I think for me it was just kind of, uh, yeah, maybe just never really thought of it at the time and, and where I was at in cycling. I uh, went like entering entering college, I guess. It was just, uh, you know, still kind of a, a lifestyle sport, I guess, for me. So I didn't, I didn't see any need to... Uh, pay anybody or or have a a real schedule or anything time it was just uh go out ride when you feel like it don't ride when you don't (laughs) yeah and 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 since joining lotto yumbo you've worked with their coaching staff i i assume yep yep you still don't have a personal coach is that correct um the 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 trainers on the on the team are i guess that would be your your personal coach so each each one of the trainers has about uh yeah maybe five to five to eight riders it's pretty yeah intensive i guess with them you know throughout the whole year schedule and training wise so this might sound uh somewhat silly being asked of someone who doesn't hasn't had a coach and 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 works with the team but i feel like you have a great sense of what you need to do for yourself personally right now do you think that you need a coach that you would improve if you had the right coach? Um, I think so. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of it is just of uh, the, the kind of relationship you, you have with uh, the coach, depending on what kind of person you are. You know, if you're, if you're happy to just go along with what you're prescribed and, and do, do everything to a T or, or if you, you know, you need more variety in your program, or you have certain ideas about what you should be doing. You know, I think different people are maybe, I guess, easier to coach than uh, than other people. Yeah, I guess it depends on the the individual and and what they get out of it, and relationship wise. Work it on your holiday wish list this year. Normatech is the ultimate athlete gift, and for a limited time, you can save $200 and get free shipping on the Pulse Recovery System. An extensive body of research shows that Normatech increases circulations and reduces muscle stiffness. The result is that you can train harder and race faster. Normatech is the official supplier of USA Cycling and is also the same technology that riders like Tom Skynch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC race team all rely on. Until this past year, really, I'd never had a coach. And through working with Trevor on a lot of different things, I have uh, coerced you into being my coach, I guess. I, I've gifted you things. That is how We but bartered. I, we bartered. That's what we I, did. I, I'm a little frightened by the fact that since you've been working with me, there's something you've really been thinking about. I want to hear what that thing is. <laughs> it, honestly, the thing that I think about is for people that aren't lucky enough to have a friend that is a coach – how do you find a good coach? What's the process? Do you interview them? Do yeah. you, you know, it's not shopping for a car necessarily, but so Neil, to start us off, how do you think you should, a person should go about finding that coach that's right for them? 
Yeah. When when looking for a coach, there's clearly a few things that you need to consider. It, it, it is a little bit more like dating than it is buying <laughs> a car because uh, it is a relationship sure. that you're trying to go down, you know, go down that road. But a couple of the key things I always look for in a coach is do they have basically a knowledge base and education and something that's along the lines? Now, doesn't mean they have to have a PhD in exercise physiology, but do they have some general background understanding knowledge in in some way that's relevant? Two, do they have uh, basically experience in working with athletes doing similar things to you? Of a similar caliber athlete. caliber athlete. So if I were looking to go to, a a, say, a driving school, let's say I didn't have my license, I don't think that calling up Lewis Hamilton and (laughs) saying, uh, I'm interested in learning how to get my driver's license, he'd be like, you're what? Like, so I don't even for have the, one of for those, those out there who don't know who Lewis <laughs> Hamilton is, he's a Formula One driver. Yeah, so very good. Very, very good. Um, so his skill set may not necessarily carry over to sure. actually being able to tell somebody how to drive on open roads and obey speed limits and, right. and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, even though his knowledge and skill set is far in a totally different thing. So an Olympic coach might not necessarily be who you're looking at if you're trying to finish a century. Right. Or, or to drop a, a few minutes off your 40K, you don't necessarily need somebody that has, you know, extraordinary experience far beyond what you're looking to do, mm-hmm. um, but relevant experience and working with athletes of similar background. Again, if you're 45 years old, work full time, have some old injury stuff, you're different than somebody who's coached 20 year old super phenoms who you know, right. were born with the best genetic gifts and basically you have them do any exercise and they got better. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody who's worked with somebody who has the challenges that you have in your life and, and similar goals. For me, certification is it's like, oh my gosh, that's not that important. But it shows me that, that that coach actually takes seriously what they're doing. Going to a certification through a national governing body doesn't make somebody a great coach. It just shows that they care enough to be professional enough about what they mm. do. So those are some of the the, fir- the the key things. And then just that personal yep. relationship. And so being able to talk with them a couple times, like if they're going to charge you something to talk to them in the first time, I'd, I'd probably walk the other way. Move myself. on. Um, yeah. And the funniest thing about all this is I've, I haven't had a coach in uh, decades and decades since high school. And I've continued to race and things, but I use resources of other coaches and friends that are coaches and even the athletes uh, in some cases I've worked with as, as you know, mm-hmm. surrogate coaches. Does Dr. Pruitt get on your case about it as much as he gets on mine? Uh, I, I guess we're at a level where he doesn't cause he, yeah, I'm, uh, he doesn't get, he doesn't ride it on me. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm lucky enough. He has told me a dozen times, Trevor, heart surgeons don't do heart surgery on themselves. <laughs> Stop coaching yourself. <laughs> Very true. I bet some of them do actually. <laughs> Only in an emergency. <laughs> Only in emergency. And then there's again scales that go beyond that. The stuff like you know, I fly over to Europe a, a couple of weeks ago right. and and meet Rowan and and check in with him. He's got some you know new family you know changes in his life and just getting to to catch up with him a couple of days. We do a little bit of testing, but more of it you know chat in a couple hour ride, which is. The only time of year I can do it and his very lowest level of fitness where, you know, I'm still near my limit and but able to talk with him that we can have some interaction like that. And, and it just helps that coaching relationship to be built better and and have something to, to connect with over time and be, you know, direct and honest. Rebecca, would you have anything to add to that about how to choose a coach that's right for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I basically, it's sort of referrals. It's all about referrals for me. And I, I agree with, with some of the points and certifications are a good thing and all that. But I didn't look at any of that. My first serious coach when I got cy- cycling was a friend. And so, and he was doing it for free. So that was the number one factor. And, and he'd been a bike racer himself. And I, I really wasn't a cyclist at all. I had been rock climbing and doing other stuff. So, so he knew far more than I did. Um, and he was a good friend and it was very cost effective because he wasn't going to charge me. So how could I say no to that? But then when he got busy with the rest of his job and he couldn't do it, I went searching for, for Dean or for someone. And, and it really was referrals of, of who they'd coached in the past kind of like an Angie's list sort of a thing, you know, how many stars does he get? And and I talked to some people who had worked with him because he did have a little bit of a reputation that preceded him. Um, and I kind of on the surface, when you look at somebody's bio, I think he had, he had on his bio for CTS, Dean had um, a scene from Rocky where he's like running in the snow. Do, do you guys know what scene I'm talking about? Yes. 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 Yeah, Trevor and has like, seen that scene eight thousand times during many yeah. Zwift sessions. I actually—that's what I, I watch when I'm on on a trainer, and I have it timed so that when he gets to the top of the mountain and screams "Drago," that's right when I finish my interval. Nice, <laughs> well done. Well, I okay. Sorry, so I go ahead. Coaching bio—that was basically all he put, you know, up on his CTS coaching bio. There you go. And that sums it up, I, I guess. Like, as a female, and I hadn't been psyching a long time, just like, is that the kind of guy I want to work with? And I, I was a little hesitant. But then I, I looked at his resume, and most of his world champions, Olympians, he's had the best success with are all female athletes. And I asked him, I'm like, did, they, did you choose that? And he was like, no, it just worked out that way. And, you know, we had some funny initial like dating conversation of coaching women versus coaching men. And, you know, he has a really dry sense of humor and, and we did hit it off, but I, I was pretty scared. And, you know, I went to, I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm different than any athlete you've ever coached and all that. And he's like, no, you're not. You're going to be the same. I'm like, no, 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 I have different needs. And, you know, it turned out that we are both a little bit right. But I think initially I did a little background research. I was a little scared by the Rocky scene, but <laughs> he, he was credible, you know, in the athletes that he had trained. And then the bottom line, we liked each other and and we started telling jokes and he had a really big respect for the kind of ultra endurance stuff I did. So he also wanted to work with me. And the other thing I will say, if somebody's shopping for a coach is, is don't underestimate yourself. Like I, I said before, people are like, well, I'm not world-class. I don't need that, that great of a coach. I would encourage people to get the best that you can afford just as I would with a bicycle. You know, you know, beginners are always like, I don't need a carbon fiber bicycle get the best tool that you can afford um, because that will just bring out your best performance. And so I would encourage people to shop up if they can. And you may not be able to do that for two, five, many years. Maybe you have a coach for a year that is expensive and you really hone in and learn from that relationship. And then you have to take a break for financial reasons. You know, money is a motivator. And if somebody really invests in paying for a coach that alone is going to increase their level of accountability to show up on those hard days to do their workouts. And so even if the coach writes a crappy training program, the fact that they invested the money, they are going to be more invested in their process and their commitment to their goal. And so that alone um, is sort of another boost towards maybe a little more expensive programs because you really are going to force yourself to get the most out of it because you put your hard-earned cash down. Whereas if it was a free online program, it's sort of like, well, I'm not really losing anything. I'm only letting myself down. 
and I'm not losing any money. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that thing today because it, it looks sucky on the schedule. Accountability is big on that in terms of a coach can hold you accountable to, to doing it in a way that a plan, you know, or a free thing is not. Absolutely. Right. Now that we've talked a lot about Dean Golich, let's give him a chance to explain his approach and why he thinks individuality is important. We stereotype or uh, try to profile, oh, a female would need to be trained like this. A male needs to be trained like this. And so if it's my bias of coaching, I found that there's basically two types of people and they're not by gender, that there's many, and maybe they intermix all the time within themselves of that you really want to win, so you win, and you're so afraid to lose, you win. And so there's an insecurity, a failure that drives everything. But then there's also a really dominant of competition, dominant side of competition mentality. And then I've seen people that, you know, obviously I've dealt with a lot of high level, you know, Olympic medalists and world champions and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen them go through both scenarios constantly from month to month, year to year and, and so on. And, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't have a theory of how I deal with it. And everyone asks me, like, oh, you've had a lot of success with women. What do you do different? I'm like, I don't do anything different. It's been really the way my parents raised me, <laughs> which I wish I had a better answer. But it's like, just treat people the right way. Try to be holding accountable. And then you go forward because the rest of it is way too complicated to figure out. So that's what I got. <laughs> Let's get back to the show. If you could summarize the best qualities in Dean as a coach, what would they be? Um, collaboration, massive wealth of knowledge, keeping me accountable, um, and honest feedback, and a cheerleader, and a friend. And Neil, what would, what would you say are the best qualities in a good athlete that makes them most coachable? If, if that's a term. Yeah. Um, uh, honest, uh, inquisitive, committed, and driven. Mm -hmm. So just, I had two quick things to add to when you're looking for a good coach. And I think those that, that you two summarized it fantastically. So I'm just going to expand slightly on two things that you said. One is you, you definitely want to see who a coach has coached in the past, but and this was actually also in the Jack Daniels book, be careful of that coach who's had that one star athlete. Because sometimes you get bad coaches who are just lucky enough to pick up a super talented kid when they were young. And it was a kid that was going to go to the top levels no matter what. Doesn't make them a good coach. So, for example, yeah. oh, you've yeah. worked with Rohan. <laughs> yeah. But there is a huge list of athletes that you've worked with. And you have been very consistent on getting them to very high levels. That's what you really yeah. want to look for. Absolutely. Not just the one. I, I, I was at a conference recently and somebody from British Cycling was talking about one of uh, Wigan's first coaches. And the guy said, man, I thought I could just do no wrong. And then I realized I was coaching Bradley Wiggins. And he was just <laughs> better than yeah. everyone with ever, whatever he did. And I think when I started coaching, actually Taylor Finney too, at, at, you know, and, and he had some success early on and people are like, well, yeah, I was like, yeah, I know. And the biggest thing is like, do no harm in that phase and make sure that he could continue to build up. And he wasn't training like a 20 year old when he was 16, even though he looked like a 20 year old, he's six, four and whatever it, it's being appropriate level so that they continue to make progress. And a lot of times the best coaches know how to hold the reins 
and be like, whoa, whoa, because the, the, the athletes that are driven can overdrive it. So, you know, it's uh, you got to be able to a coach can be the person who can be like, whoa, this right now is not what you need. We're going to get there, but we're going to get there mm-hmm. in a little longer mm-hmm. time or a little different pathway. And I think the other thing I would add to what both of you are saying is, Rebecca, I loved you. You described having that conversation with with uh, Dean and almost treating it like a first date. And what I would add to that is trust is everything. At, at some point when you're working with a coach, things are not going to go well or you're going to be doing a ton of training and see no results and you're going to question your training. And if you don't trust your coach, your temptation is going to be forget the plan. I'm going to do what I think is best. So there yeah. needs to be that trust in whoever is coaching you. Yeah. Trust and faith on that are absolutely massive in both ways. Again, I, I need to trust the athlete is going to do what they can and, and be honest with that feedback. And they also need to be able to trust that I am looking at their best interest and in, in doing everything I can to help them to reach those goals at that two-way. Let's flip it around. Maybe I'll turn it to you, Rebecca. What do you think makes a bad coach? Mm, a bad coach ego sort of you know somebody who feels like they're in charge um you know they're the boss you're the you're the client that definitely i don't think is a productive relationship withholding information you know and not being totally honest and i kind of liken that to like when you go to a doctor's visit and they take your blood pressure and they don't tell you what it is and they just kind of look at that and go hmm you know and <laughs> you're like what yeah what oh what don't make me <laughs> and, nervous yeah. And so I, I really like an open flow of communication of like, hey, you screwed up and this is what happened or, hey, you know, this is what's going on or this is why that isn't working or this is what these numbers mean. Here you go. So, yeah, I think a really open flow of information, good and bad. So if somebody's withholding like that, that just doesn't feel like it's collaborative. And then just not considering the person, the the personality of the athlete, you know, having a cookie cutter approach, one-stop shop. And if that's what you are getting out of your coach, you might as well just get an online version and save some money. That's just the math. Um, and there's quite a few of those. If you're training for a hundred miler and you have, you know, four months by this program. So if your coach isn't offering more of a personalized, uh, personalized input, than than just the numbers of what you do on the workout each day, and they're not changing it based on your needs or your life, like having a baby or having stress in your life, a cookie cutter approach. I think that that makes a bad coach as well. Very good. And Neil, what makes, what makes a really bad athlete? You've probably, have you coached <laughs> any bad athletes <laughs> without naming no names? <laughs> okay. And what was Some bad about the them? Things that, uh, the, the honesty and not, not being open mm-hmm. with what's really going on. And why do you think they acted that way? It, it, in some cases, it's, you know, just stuff going on in their life. Um, sometimes it's, it's sometimes, hard to admit that yeah. they, you know, c- couldn't do it or couldn't hack yep. it or something like that. Yep. Yep. And they were afraid to to say, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, being afraid to admit, you know, sometimes of those a weakness. things. Yeah. Because they feel like the coach knows what I need to do. And, and they may have likely had a prior coach who was a top down, don't question me. And so they've learned or other relationships in their life that they've learned that that's the, that's just, you don't question the authority. Right. And so I'm just going to hide it until they nuke out, blow up, get injured, <laughs> sick, or say, I can't yeah. do this anymore yeah. and quit, which is not good. So the honesty part, 
The other thing, occasion, it's rare you get that subversive personality. And again, it's more, you know, there's stuff going on in their life that, you know, the, the, the sport is a, a side part of it. And it's just a weird thing that it's, again, more, more, uh, more psychology in a clinical sense than I think I'd get into mm, in the sports psychology sure. side of it. Those are the, the biggest things. And then the other ones are the apathetic. Uh, there's people like, oh, I hired you to be my coach and I don't want to talk to you. You just tell me what to do. And, and that's all. And it's like, well, no, I need a little bit of feedback. This is a right. two way thing. And, you know, I get bored. I'm bored as well. Like if you're not going to tell me what's <laughs> going on, if you're not uploading files, if you're not doing that, giving me a call, replying to a text, like from the same same thing, like if a coach were doing that and not being responsive, if, if an athlete is unresponsive, I've had a couple I said, like, listen, you're not you're not towing the line on your side. You're not holding up your end of the bargain that again, I'm committing time and energy to work with you. If you're not interested in, in working with me, let's let's make sure you find a better fit. Make as, a move. as a coach, there's two types of athletes that you coach. There, there's the one that you secretly wish would call you a little less. And then there's the <laughs> athlete that you wish would call you a lot more. No, I get Goldilocks clients, baby. I just go for the, <laughs> find the find that one right in the middle. If it's just right. They call just enough, text just enough. That's the goal. How many texts a day is, is enough? Is it more? Depends than... on the day. Okay. <laughs> some days it could be 20 or 30 texts if oh, there's wow. an event and there's a lot of stuff going on. And sometimes it's absolutely zero texts for a week. Yep. Kate Courtney had a really funny story about her coach. And yep. she said they, that basically now he, whenever there's like a really hard workout on the schedule, he just won't answer her texts until, you know, <laughs> until the workout's done. Because he knows she's – and she kind of laughed about it. She's like, yeah, I, I, I know he's – I'm trying to get a way out of it or trying to like, you know, oh, do I have to do all that? And so he just doesn't answer on those days. He's yeah. like, talk to me later when you're done with your workout. When it's done. <laughs> That's a beautiful piece of insight into – I mean, talk about an amazing athlete who's young. He's, she's the world champion and yet – she is trying to get out of workouts or she, you know, maybe not she's getting out of workouts, but yeah. there are doubts in her mind. There, yeah. there are things yeah. every, it's, it's great to, to know, to, to hear it again. Even the best athletes in the world lack confidence at times. They lack maybe some discipline at times. They, they have those little chinks in the armor. Well, that is where the coach elevates that. Obviously, yeah. she's physically really gifted, and that's where a coach really does elevate you to the next level. Yeah. Well, we actually had your coach. So we had Dean on the, the show not too long ago, and he, <laughs> we were talking about the psychology side, and he said, all of you out there get to see these athletes when they stand on the Olympic podium and talk about you know, the, their success. But he's like, I see the two years before that, which is all the crying the, and the <laughs> crying and I don't think yeah. I can do it. And he's like, that's the normal mode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. April 1st, a few years ago, I put a massive ride on a rider schedule. It was the end of a block. They were getting ready for a series of races and, and they texted like, is this an April Fool's joke? And I, <laughs> I didn't even realize that it was April 1st that I put this hardest workout they had ever, you know, that I had ever asked them to do. I was like, oh, uh, uh, sorry, no, not a joke. It's it's a big one. Good luck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, because they knew I sometimes had a sense of humor as yeah, well, sure. and, you know, in a way that, you know, it was like, are you, were you serious about, oh, oh yeah, that was a serious one. <laughs> not, not a joke. So, yeah. <laughs> We talked several episodes back with Ned Overend about longevity and cycling. Despite his decades of success, Ned has never worked with a coach. Let's listen again to his answer when we asked him why. After all the success you've had, you've never had, you've never really had a coach. 
I'm curious if you've ever thought to yourself, would I be even better if I did? Um, I, I do think that, except I think one of the, one of the reasons for my longevity is that I train the way I want to, and it's worked well for me. The problem with having a coach is that for sure it's going to add structure to my training and my unstructured style of training, I think it's one of the things that has helped keep me enthusiastic about, about riding. You develop a relationship with a coach and I'm always afraid that <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to let the coach down because I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to follow his plan because I won't want that kind of structure, you know, and, and it will add extra stress to it. Right. Because I'll be feeling the stress of this guy wants me to train this way today and I don't want to train that way today. Yeah. There's something to be said about maintaining the, the fun of why you do this to begin with. I'm also going to quickly interject here as the coach and say that a good coach realizes that the the workouts are are 10% of it. Um, and if all you're doing is telling an athlete, do this Tuesday, this Wednesday, this Thursday, I think you're, you're missing out on a lot of it. And a big part of a, being a good coach is, is recognizing what makes each athlete tick and work with that. Uh, so a good coach working with you would realize giving him a bunch of wattage numbers and telling him what to do every day is actually going to be counterproductive and more work with you in the way that you like to, to train. All that being said, if you had come to me and said, coach me, and now that I've had this conversation with you and seen a lot of information about you, most of my response would be, you have really perfected it, and, and you are doing exactly what they are saying you should be doing. So you know, my answer is, I'm not sure uh, you would see that much of an improvement with a coach. Yeah, I don't doubt. A coach, and, and like you say, a good coach is going to just try and fine-tune what you're doing right and and little changes what you're doing wrong when you have an athlete that, that's had some success. All right, back to the show. Should we talk about money? Do you want to talk about specifics of money? How, how much should people be paying for coaches? Is that a topic we want to dive into a little bit? Seeing as okay. Chris paid me what a helmet and a, a used bike computer, I think, no, I uh, didn't. I, none of, none of that stuff. None not of that yet. stuff. Oh, you're borrowing. <laughs> yes, I'm being yeah, oh, he's going to recall them. They're borrowed from from brands. They're test. You're testing them. You don't realize you have to write reviews about all these products. Uh, so you're like, actually not uh, paying me at all. It's a squeeze back. <laughs> it's in fact, it's the opposite. You're being charged yeah, for the work. Wow. Yeah. Ah, well. I can jump down yeah, the road. Yeah, sure. I mean, Let's... Sometimes free is what you pay for. You know, you get the value out of that on a mm-hmm. free thing. That being said, you know, free training plans and some of those things are often a, it's it's a you know it's a gateway drug to getting into coaching. You know, so I, I mean, people out there offering tree, free training plans and things like that for me as a coach is not a negative. I, again, I can't coach everyone in the world. I don't want to coach everyone in the world. I don't think every coach wants every client. And so, having something that's a, a starting point like that is good. I believe, you know, some of what we think about, you know, those those people who are like just write training plans as a, and they call themselves a coach. I think their jobs are at risk very soon. Uh, you can call Great. it whatever you want, whether it's AI, machine learning, all those kind of things, something that actually will be responsive to how your body um, is going. And right. there's going to be plans that are going to be semi-automated soon and, and fully automated that are actually probably better. Mm-hmm. in some cases mm-hmm. of planning out specific workouts, but they're still not going to be coaching you. So for me as a coach, I'm excited for that period of time in a few years where I don't have to spend quite as much time on that planning and looking and analyzing, but I have more time 
to be able to communicate, guide, skills, like do those things in coaching that I believe are the bigger value where that that knowledge and experience can be transferred uh, more effectively. If they're paying me to just write plans, again, I think that's, you know, you, you don't charge a whole lot for that. It's the other things you bring to the table as a coach that then mm. there can be value for that. And I'll give one other thing when some athletes, uh, you know, if they're looking for a coach who, you know, does only coach and that's what they do. And they're like, well, how many athletes do you have? I was like, okay, about this many. And it's like, okay, well, if you're charging that amount, like, okay, if that's your job, you look at that salary, think of the number of athletes, the amount you're willing to pay them. What's that salary? Would you be comfortable with that person actually be able to live in the world that they live <laughs> for that amount of money? Yes or no? If no, well, then is what you're offering or what that value, you know, it's a value proposition. So if you don't want somebody, you know, a coach that has 50 athletes, well, then you're going to have to pay them more than a pittance. Mm -hmm. I got sent this really interesting machine learning study where they took a plan from British Cycling and compared it to a computer-generated plan. And, and what they, they didn't actually put athletes through these two plans. They ran it through the system to see which produced the, the optimal balance of CTL and ATL and, and all the numbers and said, absolutely, the computer-generated plan got the athlete to a, a better level on the numbers. And I just read it and went, but where's the day where it snowed? Where's the day where the athlete got sick? Where's the day where the athlete's struggling and calls up the computer and says, I don't think I can do this anymore? Yeah, exactly. That adjustment for real life. Like I tell my athletes when I do write out a training plan, I'm writing it in the bubble of a somewhat perfect world. As soon as you see it, you're now in the real world. <laughs> we, it, it, a lot of times hitting 80, per, 80 or 90% of what's planned is actually going to yield a higher result than if you try to hold yourself to 100% accountability on everything. And same thing as a coach. I don't want somebody to do more than they can on a given day. Actually, I can tell you with Rowan Dennis, I've worked with him now for, for you know many, many years. And why he's had more success later is that he's been able to say, okay, I'm not just going to do everything and plow through it, you know, no matter what. He listens to his body a little more and he'll contact me like, I'm not sure. Should I do this? Because I did that. No, let's let's do this mm -hmm. instead. And just being more flexible right. has helped him be more successful. And actually, as I remember, because you worked with a few of the athletes on, on Team Rio Grande when I was managing the team, you never actually sent them the plan for the week until they had finished the previous week because you yeah. want to see where they were at. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't plan six weeks or four weeks or hardly even two weeks ever. Uh, it's kind of week by week. And sometimes it's like a couple days. Let's just see how you're responding. And then we can, you know, flux up or down a little bit. And because sometimes I found that putting things really far in advance it creates anxiety in a lot of folks. They're looking ahead. They're not just focusing on the right now. They're thinking about the next time they do it. It's going to be harder or longer or this or that. Just keeping it, here we are. This is task right now. Stay in the moment and let's get this done. And then we see how you're responding because training isn't necessarily about getting the most tired. It's about getting the greatest response. Armando Mastrassi is the inventor of the Exert training software, which has a lot of impressive automated features, including recommending workouts and training routines. I had a chance to ask Armando his thoughts on whether software will replace coaches. There's certainly a lot of variables involved, but if you, if you, if you imagine what a coach will do, is a coach will make decisions in terms of how they prescribe the training. They make decisions based upon the information that they have. And a lot of that information is very precise, power data, 
the interpreted information from the power data, whether that's you know stress stress scores or strain scores and other other information that you gather you, you gather from systems. So a lot of that process and and you know prescribing workouts for you know particular individual based on their their capacity and their targets, a lot of that can be improved and automated through software. So we're already showing how we can, you know, prescribe workouts that are highly ind individualized for an athlete uh, with very precise targets, very precise recovery targets, things that would take a coach a long time to kind of assess. Um, we do it inherently within the software. So some parts of that are, are, are kind of um, certainly areas that we could, let's say, provide greater coaching services to greater individuals because we can we can make this all automated, right? But that, so that can be either in the hands of an individual or in the hands of a coach. So the coach can maybe find their the, the time it takes for them to kind of manage the, their athletes is going to be dramatically reduced, right? Because they can rely on software to perform things you know that they've been doing themselves. But there's all the subjective aspects of coaching that cannot be replaced, right? Right. Yeah, so that's really the, what, the, one of the key areas that uh, really cannot be replaced by any kind of software. It's, just, it's the subjective interpretation of the athlete, right? So how do you motivate the athlete? How do you encourage the athlete? Um, uh, how do you give them um, uh, tactics that they can use within a race? Uh, how, do, how do the tactics adjust over time based upon uh, how they're feeling and how they're reacting? All these things are all uh, areas that a coach can provide tremendous value outside of just examining the numbers and making decisions based upon the numbers. You know, that the software can do, and it can do for the coach or, or for the athlete. Um, and I think coaches, uh, the best coaches are really the ones that know how to, how to bring out the best in their athletes, not just in terms of how they do the training, but also in terms of preparing them for their events and giving them the confidence that, that uh, you know, they can perform and, and be, be at their best. You know, the, the other side is is that, the, like I was saying, the, the software can provide a way to automate, right? Allow the coach to coach more people and provide these other subjective value to more individuals, right? So to rely on the software to do a lot of the manual work that they were doing in the past uh, and allow them to really focusing, uh, focus in on the things that are most important to, to the athlete um, in terms of their confidence and ability to, to perform. Okay. Neil, you actually touched on this, but I think about two months ago, back in August, Chris and I were recording a podcast with Dr. Pruitt, and he commented that even if you have the best coach in the world, you should change coaches mm -hmm. just to get different approaches, different perspectives. So his recommendation was about every three years, an athlete should change coaches. So how do you, how do you two feel about this? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I'm not going to say a whole scale. Yes, because it, it typically, you know, with a lot of the athletes, it takes a year of ramp up to understand them pretty well. If you have the right fit, if you have the Goldilocks coach athlete relationship, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So I think that in some cases, yeah, if it's definitely not fitting, if you're not in the Goldilocks, if you're not in that zone, then for sure you should change it. And I wouldn't wait three years, you know, I'd get, you know, make that change sooner than later. But that said, it, it is a little bit of fits and starts a lot of time in the first few months until you kind of fit, until you find that groove with a given coach, a little bit of, okay, this is definitely working and this is what we do. And, and it can work for a while. And I think, you know, I don't think there's a term limit of three years that like now you need someone else. Uh, I mean, I've had athletes that for sure didn't have their greatest success till after working together for many years. Flora Duffy, I 
started coaching her in 2009 and uh, she won her first world title then in 2014, I believe, in Xterra and, and, you know, two world titles and in 2015 and 2016. So it took a little while if, if we had given up after three years or if she said, okay, I need a new one or a different one. I'm not sure, you know, we would have lost out, you know, she might have lost out on some of the momentum that was building up and building up. And, you know, there was different situations. She was in school. So, so it was split between training and racing. And so I think there that, that a three-year term limit or a three-year limit, you know, no, but over time changes. Yes, I do not coach Flora now. And I haven't, you know, it's been over a year or about a year now. And, and that's, you know, that's good and okay. It was time. It was time for that change. So Rebecca, what's, and we promise we won't let Dean listen to this. What's your thoughts? <laughs> well, I'm going to go back to where we started with my example of a marriage. And so should you, should you take a break from your marriage every three years? <laughs> if it's, if it's a good one, no, if it's a bad one, maybe, but you know, you think about any good, important relationship like that. There are things that I would factor into what Dr. Pruitt said is that in a marriage, for example, it is important to take a break and travel with your girlfriend sometimes and do things on your own and have your own activities sometimes. And, and there'll be a cycles in my off season where Dean and I don't talk and I do take a break from him. And the other part of a really healthy relationship, long-term relationship, like a marriage or a really good coaching one is that it's constantly evolving. And that means that you are educating yourself and you're reading up on stuff and, um, and Dean continues to study. So it's not like, I would say, yes, if the relationship stayed the same, then you, you take what you can from it and then you change to somebody else and elevate the experience. But if it really is a positive give and take relationship, it's evolving every three years anyway. And so it's not where, where I started with Dean is not where I am now. And, you know, I'm married too. I don't, I don't feel the need to take to leave my husband after three years, but I do feel <laughs> a need to change and evolve and take a break and keep learning together. Let's try to boil everything we've talked about down in this last hour and 15 minutes. Let's boil it down into one minute for Neil, one minute for Rebecca, one minute for Trevor. Let's start with Neil. You're on the clock. Well, you don't have to actually okay, at look at the clock, Neil, but I like your precision. I'm a very literal person okay. as a coach. Yep. You give me one minute. Okay, I got to get All this right. done in a minute. Here's your minute. What are those key take-homes that people should take away from this discussion? Um Looking for a coach is is a bit of a journey. You're going to have to take into account a lot of different things in, in what that person is, who they are, what they can provide you. Do they have a right uh, matched set of skills, knowledge, experience to be able to help guide you to what your goals are? Make sure that in, in finding that person that your first thing is the relationship and, and being able to be open, honest, and have good communication. Uh, second to that then is being able to find out what, what method of working together is going to be most effective for, for you and them. That's going to lead you to have those successes and, and, and for the, you know, for the coach and athlete to share in those kind of things. And, and when it's not working well, to be able to have that conversation, those hard conversations of, okay, it's not going well, what do we need to change? And not anyone get defensive about that. It's like, okay, we need to change and not being afraid of, of switching things up, moving things around and uh, continuing to, to move forward in just like any, any relationship. It's not always going to be smooth, but if it's going the right direction, you got the right stuff. Very good. Rebecca, you're on the clock. You got one minute. I heard you scribbling down some notes. Maybe you, you were, maybe really? you, 
<laughs> yeah. Yep. Maybe you were writing a, a, a poem or something. I don't really know, but I assume it's about um, our conversation. So take it away. Well, like any, you give any like sort of type A person uh, a one minute, you know, and then we're all just like, oh my gosh, okay, I have one minute. Um, <laughs> then worse than doing three minute intervals is a one minute interval. <laughs> You're now down to 48 seconds. Yeah, you oh, better God. really okay. scare you here. No, no. So I, my takeaway is to, to treat a, a great coaching relationship is like a great marriage or any great relationship, but it takes work. It takes the right kind of people together, it takes collaboration takes tough love, it takes hugs, but really, it really is a relationship that is, is give and take. And when you hit the magic, it really does elevate your performance to levels that, that you couldn't even imagine. You become a better person, a better athlete. And the last thing I will say is that everyone, any level of athlete can, from a total beginner to an Olympic elite can benefit from a from a coach and that human performance is human performance. And so don't sell yourself short thinking that you don't deserve a coach. Very good. Trevor. So Chris and I have a friend who worked at a very large coaching center and he told us that basically the coach does an interview with the athlete at the very beginning. And then they figure out you're a rider type 2F, and then they have this computer system that punches out a big plan for you, which they give you, knowing full well you're never going to execute it perfectly. So if you come back and say at the end of the season, I didn't hit my goals, I didn't accomplish what I hoped to accomplish, they just say, well, you didn't follow the plan perfectly. That's bad coaching. Yes. <laughs> so what you, I think, heard here that I think is the big message is the plan the what to do day by day, week by week is is ten percent of coaching. Uh, the rest is the interaction. It's the uh, the trust. All these things that can't be put down on a calendar. So look for those things. Very good. I guess I come at it from a slightly different perspective because I'm so he is a lousy coach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a coach, but I guess I was a coach of myself for many years. I wouldn't even say I was. In the traditional sense, I just rode my bike and I happened to be do stuff. Do stuff. I did stuff. And sometimes it clicked, sometimes it didn't. But as as I mentioned recently, I am working with a coach. His name is Trevor. He's sitting at this table. I think the, the from my perspective, um, for those out there that have always thought, nah, I don't really need a coach or uh, I don't want to work with a coach because I don't want to deal with that relationship or it's uh, whatever. I think uh, there's nothing to be intimidated by it. There's also that maybe those those athletes out there that have that attitude like, oh, I, I want to do everything on my own. I can do this. I don't need a coach. I don't need this help. Well, as we've all been talking about in this podcast and Rebecca has mentioned several times, that right coach for you will elevate your level to or take you to that next level that you maybe even didn't know was there, was out there. So maybe that was a bit of a rambling answer in one minute, but I would just say, don't be intimidated. If you're going to give it a try, make sure you find the right person and then let the magic happen. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vela News and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Vela News. 
Fast Talk is a joint production between Vela News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Rebecca Rush, Neil Henderson, Ned Overend, Armando Mastracci, Dean Golich, Kieran O'Grady, Sepp Kuss, who am I forgetting? Oh, Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.